0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, Thank you, Roy. In 2003, I took a team from Valenhinch Baptist Church, my previous church, to uh, Brazil. Some of the team were young, some were not so young. And we spent a couple of weeks uh, at a Tear fund sponsored project just outside Sao Paulo working with rescued street kids. And it was an amazing adventure, but one day we were taken into Sao Paulo itself, and it's a huge city. Some of you will know it's the eighth largest city population-wise in the world, uh, something like 20, 21 million people. And we were going there to visit uh, one of their many favelas, uh, or shanty towns, or slums, although that's a slightly derogatory term. And it was one of the most humbling, fascinating, disturbing, distressing, and frightening experiences of my life and we were taken in by a couple who worked in the favelas and our team and there were about a dozen of us in the the entire team but we were split into threes to go and visit some of the local christians who actually lived and went to church in this particular favela and i'll never forget what happened in one of those little houses or those little shacks that day and we walked into this house to meet a mum And her daughter, and it was immediately apparent that the daughter was was quite a troubled girl. She was in her mid to late teens, although it was hard to tell. And we were only there about five minutes, whenever she began to shake violently in front of us. And I'm not entirely sure really how to properly describe her behaviour. But along with the shaking, she began to shriek loudly and foam at the mouth. And it was, it was shocking. And I had no clue what was going on. I didn't know what to do next and I was incredibly conscious of my responsibility to the two young people who were with me. And although I was at a complete loss, the two local Christian workers who had brought us into this house began to pray, saying that she was demon-possessed. Now this uh, had never happened to me before, hasn't happened since. But as I stood there, I listened as they prayed for her. And as they spoke scripture and as they said the name of Jesus into her situation and after about 15 or 20 minutes although it could have been longer there was a definite change as this girl settled down and a peace invaded that little shack that hadn't been there before now I don't know what actually happened in those moments had so many issues, so many issues racing through my head, so many questions. But this I do know: the people I was with that day were in no doubt what was happening, and they responded accordingly. And in their context, in their ministry, in their work in that shanty town, this was not an unusual experience. They told me afterwards. They regularly confronted what they believed to be in your face demonic activity. The second thing I know is this I now never read Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, as we're about to do this evening, without a vivid memory of that afternoon in a Brazilian favela. You see, as Christians, we do believe in the reality of evil. And I'm going to kind of assume that the majority of people here this evening are Christians. We believe in the reality of evil and that there is a supernatural dimension to life. Although, of course, that's not an exclusively Christian belief. Many, many people today recognize that there is more to life than the physical, tangible world that we can see around us and touch. But as Christians, we also believe that this supernatural realm impacts our lives and our faith at a very profound level. We're taught and discovered that we're actually involved in and caught up in a battle. And according to Paul, this battle is not against flesh and blood, and not against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers of this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Now that, to some people, might just sound like fantasy-speak. And yet, it's explicit biblical teaching. And in Mark chapter 5, the confrontation between good and evil, between the powers of heaven and the powers of hell, dramatically play out as Jesus encounters the so-called Gerizim demoniac. It's page 1007 in the Pew Bibles. Now, as we come to a story like this, we find ourselves having to deal with issues that it does raise and throw at us. I'm not going to deal with all the issues that this particular story raises or throws at us. But I do think it's worth mentioning two extremes which we kind of need to avoid when it comes to satanic or demonic activity. You see, some people can get completely preoccupied with this. Whereas there's others who can live totally oblivious to it. Two extremes. And C.S. Lewis in his classic book, The Screwtape Letters, which I know many of you have read, captures these extremes brilliantly in this comment. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And so we've got to maintain balance. Although I think that one of our greatest challenges in this whole area is to remember that although the story we're about to read does portray a very dark and sinister scene, and it does. Where the presence of evil in this story is unquestionable, and it's beyond doubt, the Bible also teaches that Satan can and does masquerade as an angel of light. And his servants masquerade or disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, according to the New Testament. And therefore, it's no surprise that many people are taken in and continue to be. Deceived by Satan and his servants, who pose as the good guys, the truth speakers, who offer hope and right answers when all they're actually doing is creating confusion and leading people on a road to nowhere. And we don't have to look very far, even from where we sit this evening, to find evidence of that kind of appealing deception satan is real he is active he stalks around like a lion intent on destruction and so we better not deny his presence we shouldn't dwell on it and we definitely shouldn't be taken in by his smooth talking nonsense okay let's read from matthew chapter 5 now in terms of context Jesus, in in Mark's account anyway, has spent the previous day speaking to crowds of people, explaining in parables secrets regarding the kingdom of heaven. And as the day draws to an end, Jesus jumps into a boat with his disciples and heads for the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And during that voyage, a violent and unexpected storm erupts. And the disciples are frightened for their lives, which is really interesting considering... That many of them were regular sailors. So this must have been some storm. And so Jesus speaks into the natural world. And it says that the wind and the waves respond to his voice and to his authority. And all calms down. The sea, the elements, the disciples. And eventually they arrive at the far side, and it's here that we kind of pick up the story. And it may still have been evening, which just adds to the atmosphere. Verse 1, follow this with me. Jesus gets out of the boat. I'm not going to read the text, but I encourage you to follow it because I'm going to kind of tell the story. Jesus gets out of the boat. I'm not sure if the disciples joined him. Their nerves were maybe shot through from their near-death experience, I don't know. But as Jesus puts his feet on dry ground and he walks away from the boat, he is, it seems, immediately approached by a man. And as Mark tells the story, he paints this graphic picture of a deeply disturbed human being. A man who, it says, has lived amongst the dead. A man who has lived in isolation and seclusion. An uncontrollable man of incredible strength who can rip chains apart. A man who cuts himself with sharp stones. And everything about this description points to insanity. But the Gospel writers and Mark tells this story. Matthew tells a kind of version of this story, although he refers to two demon-possessed men. Luke ties in more with Mark's account. But they all say, there's there's more to this man's story. This isn't insanity. He's demon-possessed. He has an evil or an unclean spirit. Now, why? Why does he? How does that happen? I've no idea. And I'm never sure that speculation is particularly helpful. And this tragic character is a mess. He's beyond human help, it would seem, although thankfully he's not beyond all help. He might have been despised and rejected and feared and written off by others, but his situation wasn't hopeless. And somehow, somehow, and I don't quite understand, but somehow he knew that. He knew his situation is not hopeless. And so whenever he sees Jesus from a distance, it says he runs towards them and Jesus clearly stands his ground. And there's something incredibly moving about this moment because I've absolutely no doubt that whenever or if ever this man ran towards anyone, they turned and sprinted for their lives. But Jesus stands and he waits and he welcomes. And as he gets to Jesus, he he falls on his knees in front of him. Something that happened frequently in the Gospels. In fact, every other main character in this chapter does exactly that. Look at verse 22. Jairus, a very different individual in so many ways, a leader of the Jewish synagogue, he falls at the feet of Jesus. Or look at verse 33. An unnamed woman who has suffered from this horrendous bleeding condition for 12 years collapses at the feet of Jesus. Three people fall. And as it turns out, three people's lives are dramatically changed. And if nothing else, what that reminds us of is how you approach Jesus matters. If you buy in submission, in reverence, and in recognition, then the potential for transformation is incredible. But if you remain dismissive, Of Jesus. If you remain irreverent, distant, and on your feet before Him, then the likelihood is you're just going to stay the way you are. And back to the story Jesus speaks to the evil spirit and tells him to come out of this man. And the evil spirit responds and says this, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? You see, the evil spirit clearly knew who he was dealing with. The identity of Jesus was no mystery to this evil spirit. And therefore, because the identity of Jesus was known to him, he knew exactly what was coming, and so he said, Swear to God that you won't torture me. That's what the text says. It's brilliant. It's actually ironic. The tormentor pleads not to be tormented. And Jesus then asks the spirit to identify himself, which he does. And the name he gives, Legion, seems to reveal that there may be more than one demon possessing this man. But knowing what is about to happen, Legion negotiates with Jesus about a relocation. Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them, and incredibly Jesus obliges. And so the evil spirits, as verse thirteen now refers to them, come out of the man and enters the herd of about two thousand pigs. But what happened next can't have been expected, because no sooner had Legion set up home within herd, this herd of swine than they find themselves hurtling off a steep bank into a lake where the pigs drown. Now sadly. Some people get stuck at this point in the story. And they miss the critical issue. People head off on all sorts of tangents regarding, first of all, well, does this raise the whole idea of animal possession? Could my pet be demon-possessed? Or others get hung up on this idea that Jesus was complicit in the destruction of over 2,000 animals And not only was he complicit in the destruction of over 2,000 animals, but Jesus wrecked somebody's livelihood. And I'm not saying those aren't fair points. And I'm not suggesting that they're completely irrelevant. But there is a real danger that if you go there too quickly, you overlook these five words in verse 13. The evil spirit's Came out. That means there is now a liberated human being whose life and existence has just been altered beyond his wildest dreams. And you see, if you miss that, you miss the most important part of this story. And as news filtered through to the local community, some arrived to investigate this scene for themselves. And Mark tells us that what they found when they came to investigate the scene was this man who was once possessed and terrifying is now sitting and he's dressed and he's in his right mind. And at this point... At this point, surely you'd expect Jesus, this man who can bring healing and restoration to outcasts in a community, surely you would expect him to at the very least be welcomed, thanked, and invited to stay. But no. And there's something illogical about this. Verse 17. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave. Why? Why did they so desperately want rid of the miracle worker? They Mark does say they were afraid. But afraid of what? Which is more frightening? A demon-possessed man who can't be bound or a miracle worker who changes lives? Which is more frightening? For me, I think their fascinating responses reveal three things. Or at least let me suggest they provoke us to consider these three possibilities. The first is that although Jesus may be amazing, he may have authority over wind and waves, he may have authority over the powers of darkness, he may be able to transform a once messed up life. But Jesus is also unsettling. Jesus is risky. Jesus is disturbing, and therefore, there are many people who would prefer if he just didn't hang about. And we might think that a Jesus who can convert a life should be embraced, and yet that's not the reaction Jesus got, and sadly, still doesn't. And I believe there is one reason for that, and that is that by his very nature, you see, Jesus confronts the mess and uncovers the mess in our lives. The light of the world exposes darkness. And the truth is that as sinful human beings, we don't always like that. Because that's threatening and people love darkness more than light. And so the presence of Jesus disturbs. Whenever Jesus is offside, you can keep living as you like. But whenever Jesus is here and he's present, and he's acknowledged, then he challenges and he agitates the selfish, self-centered way of life that is a constant temptation. He wants to turn our lives upside down. Jesus wants to turn our lives inside out. And it's always for our good. And it's always so that we will discover life in all its fullness. But the truth is, we actually quite like doing it our way. We quite like doing it our way rather than his. And so people today create distance. Thanks, but no thanks, Jesus. Please leave us alone. Secondly, this comment also reveals that seeing isn't always believing. In one of uh, Woody Allen's many films, we find this comment which is widely thought to reflect his own perspective. If I could only see a real miracle, then I would believe. And I'm sure we've all heard that line, maybe even said it ourselves, but it doesn't always follow. The people in that area that day saw a cast iron miracle, no other explanation, but it didn't drive them to Jesus. And miracles never always have and never always will. But there's also another worrying possibility revealed in this comment. Could it be that we sometimes value things far more than people? You see, certain sections of this local community appear to have been far more impacted by the loss of the pigs and the commercial and the material implications than by the amazing change in this man's life. And that's an interesting thought for me anyway. but sometimes we can care far more about our own physical and material comforts than about the pain and the dysfunction. That exists in the human lives around us. And I know who Jesus or what Jesus is more interested in. And it unsettles us again. People's reaction to Jesus and to this miracle was fascinating, was varied. I've just thrown out three suggested possibilities why. But how did the man himself respond? You see, the, the people, by and large, pleaded with Jesus, please go. But according to verse 18, the man begged Jesus to let him go with him on his travels. He wanted to follow as and literally follow Jesus. Which, given what Jesus had done for him, is perfectly understandable. But Jesus refuses his request. And this may seem a bit harsh. But there was a method in his perceived madness. There was a bigger better purpose for this new believer this new convert you see jesus commissions him to go that constant word of commission that still echoes down through the ages but he doesn't commission him to go into all the world at least not yet his remit is more specific for now it's go home to your family which for many people can often be one of the hardest places to go And I must admit, I would love to have been a fly on the wall whenever this man walked through the front door of his house. In control of himself. Rational, sensible, totally transformed in mind, body and soul. I wonder how his family reacted. But Jesus doesn't just tell him to go to a specific place. He actually tells him what to say. Go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So there are times in the Gospels whenever Jesus urged people that he had healed to keep it under wraps. Stay silent, please, stay silent. But not here. Not in this context. This was different. Why? Because maybe this was a Gentile area. There were no nervous, anxious Jewish leaders stalking the streets in panic with a up for rumours of revolution. And therefore there probably was for this man a little more freedom in this area. And so Jesus says, listen, go and tell. Go and share this. And last week we reflected on, as we looked at the story of the Good Samaritan, on our call to go and have mercy on others. This week we're reminded about our need to go and share with our families and our friends and our colleagues The mercy that God has shown to us. And the question is, are we doing that? Do you know that's why this table for me is so important? Because as Roy said, this is about mercy. This is about mercy. God doesn't treat us as we deserve. But instead, he offers mercy and forgiveness. And so whenever we eat and drink on a constant basis... It stands as a reminder that we should go from this place to tell others what God has done in our lives and about the mercy He has shown to us. And this man goes and he tells his story. And it says in verse 20, very last comment all the people were amazed, and no wonder. Because the change that Jesus brought to his life was astounding. The contrast was striking. Once he lived among the dead, enslaved, now he's fully alive and liberated. Once he was completely out of control and tormented, now here is a man at peace. Once he was naked, now he's clothed. Once he's distant from God and man, now he's near to both. And at its heart, that's what the story is about. It's about the transforming love, compassion, and care of Jesus. And it's about reminding us that no one's beyond that. Something we've said, something I want to say again. No one is beyond that, irrespective of how extreme their need is from our perspective. Jesus changed this man's life, and he's still doing that today. He can change your life. And a changed life is still one of the clearest and most powerful statements of the gospel there is. But this story also reminds us about the reality and presence of evil in our world. That we must never ever underestimate the influence of an enemy who still aims to wreak havoc in human life and relationships. And yes, as scripture teaches us, he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. But truth is he is still in the world and he is still prowling about and he is still active for the time being and so as we leave here let's go and tell what god has done for us and of the mercy he has shown us but let us never ever forget that we are involved in a battle